Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moira McLean, and tonight I will be joined by the wonderful Sean Fay. Sean, it's been ages since I last saw you. Oh, I know a whole six hours, Moira, from Beyonce stage to Navara Media Live. Uh, I will let you know at the end of the episode which one was had more vibe. On tonight's show, we will be doing more on the cost of living crisis and one Tory MP's inspired solution to it. Spoiler alert: it's not helpful. We'll be talking about how a ton of jobs are being cut at one UK company and a lot of them are being replaced with artificial intelligence and some good news for Jeremy Corbyn. That's all coming up, so stay tuned. As always, make sure to let us know your comments on the YouTube Super Chat or you can tweet at us on the hashtag Navara Live. First story. Sorry seems to be the hardest word unless you're a water boss trying to get more money out of your customers. Ruth Kelly is the head of Water UK, the body representing the country's water companies. And writing in the Times, she's finally addressed the issue of sewage being pumped into our rivers, lakes and seas, saying this. I want to tell everyone today that we've listened and we've heard. On behalf of water and sewage companies in England, I want to say, we are sorry. We get why people are upset and they are right that we should have given this issue much more attention. Rivers and beaches are often not at the standard the public rightly expect. We are sorry for the part we have played in that. We want to put things right. She also appeared on BBC Breakfast, where she said this. The water industry, we know, I know how upset and angry uh, people feel. So we are apologising here today. I'm apologising on behalf of the water industry. But it's not just about an apology. This is about real new money being invested to start putting this problem right. So we've announced today the biggest investment in the water industry since Victorian times. It's a complete transformation, £10 billion, uh, to start putting this problem right. OK, has every water company in the UK signed up to it? This is about water and sewage companies. Uh, they are signed up to this plan right across England and Wales. Every single in one? Fact, every single one. And in fact, what we want to do is hold ourselves to account. The water industry and the water companies want to be held to account by the public. That sounds pretty good, right? Very generous of the water companies to put up £10 billion to actually take care of the infrastructure that delivers their profits. Except that's not what they're doing at all. Because they're not paying for it. You are. This is Kelly in that BBC interview again. Who's going to pay for it? Well, the way it works is that, is that we are shareholders to put down a down payment, a multi-billion pound down payment in, in starting to fix this problem. How much of and the 10 billion? Time, how much of the 10 billion will that cover? Well, the shareholders will put down all of that, all of that 10 billion okay. uh, and more be, beyond that. But over time, the way the system works is that there will be upward, modest upward pressure on customer bills over the full lifetime of the asset. So over 50 years or perhaps even longer, maybe up to 100 years, customers uh, do contribute to that investment programme. But why? our research suggests... Why, why, should, why should customers pay over the next century well, well, for what water companies, the, the sewage that water companies is pu are pumping into our seas and river? Well, you know, if you wanted to invest in a house, you'd have to borrow uh, to invest uh, and get a mortgage uh, and pay that back. I think people understand yeah, if that the house, if the house you do, was, you do, if the house was solidly built, if the house was solidly built, absolutely, completely uh, uh, agree with you, but not work, not to pay for sewage that shouldn't be pumped into our rivers and sewage. And, and, and I think and if you look seas. at the financial performance of water companies, you see sometimes it's not what is portrayed uh, in in the media. To be fair, three of the water companies actually lost money 
last year. Uh, on, on the whole, on average, the, uh, the return to shareholders last year was only just a bit more than you get in a deposit account, actually, if you put your savings in there and less than an average person would get from an investment account. So you do need uh, to provide shareholders with some sort of return over, over, the long t over the long term, but we're very, very conscious of the upward potential pressure on customer bills. The, uh, the cost of living pressures are right at the heart of our plan. We understand how important it is to do this efficiently, but also we understand that customers expect that investment to start being made and we want to be held to account for achieving mm. that transformation. Won't somebody think of the shareholders? After all, they only got paid out £1.4 billion last year and the water companies just haven't been investing what they should have. This chart from the Times shows the gap between what the companies are allowed to invest and what they actually have invested between 2020 and 2022. Ofwat, the water regulator, sets a budget in order to control water prices. The blue dot shows what companies actually invested. The green dot represents what Ofwat allows them to invest. As you can see, all but two companies have spent significantly less than their budget. Yorkshire Water, one of the largest water companies in England, invested only 100 million in infrastructure when it could have put in nearly 500 million. Compare that to Scottish Water, the government-owned corporation that runs Scotland's water supplies. They're spending a billion pounds per year on infrastructure. That's a fraction of the size of England's. To be fair, it's not Ruth Kelly's first time fleecing the public to pay for private water repairs. Before she became Britain's top water boss, she was Secretary of State for Education and Skills under Tony Blair, and she also got caught up in the expenses scandal of 2009. The Telegraph back then reported this. Miss Kelly used her taxpayer-funded second home allowances to pay for £31,000 of rebuilding, refurbishment and appliances at the house in her Bolton West constituency. Some of the renovations and furnishings were needed after a water pipe burst while Miss Kelly was staying at her designated main home in London. At the time of the flooding, Miss Kelly was the financial secretary to the Treasury. Miss Kelly has confirmed to the Telegraph that the building and contents of the house were covered by an insurance policy, but that she chose to pay for the work from her expenses. Responding to the water company's plans, a spokesperson for the Prime Minister said this. We've been clear throughout that we don't want to see things disproportionately impacting customer bills, especially given we know that there are people up and down the country who are struggling with the cost of living, which is why we provided the help we have in that area. Sean, are you looking forward to paying more for your water just so you don't have to swim in sewage? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. But I think this actually, this goes to the heart of what I would say to friends, family members who question my anti-capitalist socialist politics is often there is um, a misunderstanding there um, when people are sort of um, somewhat bemused by my politics and my critiques of capitalism is like, well, isn't it really about, you know, getting ahead people who work hard, uh, you know, th that they would have to subsidize people who don't work as hard. And the reality is, is that what I would say to them is like, that that's capitalism. And here we see that perfectly. We see it with water, like a basic, um, and, you know, and our, and our sewer systems are like a basic um, part of our infrastructure for us all to live. And yet they're the source of huge profits for a very small number of people to the point that when they sort of have a, like a dereliction of their own duty, 
we end up having to pay for it. It is frankly also the same thing with the energy companies that the customer has to foot the bill. We already pay in bills. They get huge amounts of um, government relief. Uh, and they obviously have the ears of government, the execs at the top of these companies, um, or indeed, uh, in the case of Water UK, like a, a body like that, um, they come from previous governments. So there's like a huge uh, enmeshing of political um, elites and um, the elites and executives and directors on boards of you know various large companies, including the ones that provide the services that we all need to live. And so for me, it's just a sign exactly. This is what capitalism is just a bit of a con. Like you, we're all getting mugged off. The revolving door between the government and, you know, major corporations, the media, etc. Every elite profession or business in Britain seems to be linked to the politicians who therefore make the policy that govern this country. One would think perhaps that's too close for comfort. Shall we move on to the next story? Almost Everyone in Britain is feeling the pinch of the cost of living crisis. That's according to new research from the Office for National Statistics, but I could have told them that myself. According to their latest social trends survey, 93% of Britons reported feeling a hit from the cost of living crisis last month. The ONS also reports that half of all adults are worried about the rising cost of food. No surprise there, because the price of some items, including meat, dairy and vegetables, has doubled since this time last year. Consumer watchdog Witch have been tracking food inflation across a range of supermarkets. And as you can see from this table, food prices in Lidl, Aldi, Morrison's and Asda have risen the fastest. In fact, they've outpaced the rate of food inflation, which stood at 17.1% in April. Prices are going up at Sainsbury's, Tesco, Waitrose and Ocado too, though at a slower pace. Of course, it's, it's not just food that's become more expensive. Mortgage payments are rising because of interest rate rises, leading to higher rates, rents as well. And energy costs a fortune too. Meanwhile, wages are stagnating. And according to the Resolution Foundation, the average worker is £11,000 per year, worse off than they were 15 years ago. This graphic from The Guardian is based on Resolution Foundation figures, and it's a stark illustration of how bad things have got. As you can see from the late 50s onwards, real wages steadily climbed. They took a dive in the 90s, but rose again in the new labour years. But since the 2008 financial crisis, they've plummeted, making only a slight recovery in the last two years. We're poorer than ever, and everything's getting more expensive. But it's all fine, because Tory MP Brendan Clark-Smith has an idea. Say, say the price has shot up at that and people say, oh, this tin has gone up by 50% or whatever, buy the Tesco value ones. No, you know, they don't taste the same. But, but if they don't uh, have... baked beans that aren't hard. Just... Eating out of season as well, Ian. You know, people wanting things all the way through the year. Yeah. And you look at the environmental impact of that as well and talking about growing more things in your community and so on. So there is a, there is a real genuine argument there about your local communities and your local environment as well. Thanks for that, Brendan, a known climate warrior. If you're struggling to do your weekly shop, don't blame the economy. Take a long, hard look at yourself and the lavish, luxury baked beans in your basket instead. After getting a bit of deserved backlash, Clark Smith followed up that appearance with this tweet. So we have Heinz baked beans at £1.40, Tesco's own brand at 50 pence, and Stockwell & Co at 28 pence. Very informative stuff. 
The issue isn't that we don't know that value brands are cheaper. It's that the only thing the Tories seem capable of is telling you to lower your expectations to match the complete mess they've made of our economy. And of course, people are lowering their expectations, paring back on the essentials, like broadband. According to the charity Citizens Advice, up to 1 million people cancelled their broadband in the last year as a way of helping with the cost of living crisis. The BBC reports this. Citizens Advice said its survey of 6,000 people suggested those receiving universal credit were six times more likely to stop spending on broadband in the last 12 months than non-claimants. The charity is concerned the problem could get worse, with people claiming the benefit four times more likely to be behind on broadband bills. Remember when free broadband was offered across the country and we said, no, that's very communist. People are also getting into more debt. And struggling to keep up with their payments, the Financial Conduct Authority has reported that at the start of this year, nearly 11 million people were struggling to keep up with bills and credit payments. That's up from 7.8 million in May last year, a 41% increase in just seven months, if only they'd switched to valued beans. Sean, should we be quibbling about the price of beans? I think beans are actually a, a pretty good um, example, really, like, you know, a staple food that's not considered luxurious. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily like the sort of time of Thatcher where it's supposed to be all politicians should know the price of a pint of milk or whatever. But I think, one, it signals a complete lack of, um, I don't know, I mean, like self-awareness on the Tories' behalf. Like, you know, this is a government headed up by an egregiously rich man. And they are, uh, as you mentioned, like completely unaware of the work conditions in which most people they govern live. And I think that's always worth challenging and like any sort of healthy, robust political media and culture, not that we have one, would challenge that. The other thing is, is that I think um, we, you know, they're, they're an example of the fact that, you know, the rise in food prices, you know, this is serious to some people, is that you know, some people, it's affecting everyone. It's even affecting, you know, for example, the lower middle class people uh, like me, for example. But for many people, there has been a huge, um, you know, sort of like tightening of their living standards for so long that like any marginal increase in food prices is going to push them over the line of precarity into extreme poverty and desperation. And um, and while some people are having to do things like um, cut their broadband, um, you know, scale back on things that are actually pretty essential for living, for others, this means to be like pretty much destitution. It's like Victorian levels of poverty in some cases. I mean, like I see the queues for food banks in my local area um, and, and they're only going to grow and the, and the people, you know, who, who are going to rely on them are only going to grow. So... Um, so, yeah, so I think that the price of beans is actually a pretty interesting um, symbol of this wider discussion about the fact that um, all we're being told by um, this government that is made up by sort of completely, you know, disproportionately rich people is just to expect less and less and to basically suck it up uh, because nothing's going to change. It's a complete politics of pessimism. Of course, not everyone is getting poorer. Some people at the very top are raking it in, like Chief Executive of National Grid, John Pettigrew. 
the FTSE 100 listed private company that runs most of our power network has today announced that their profits for the last year hit 4.6 billion pounds. The Guardian reports this. The company's annual profits followed a surge in profits from its electricity distribution business, which climbed by 39% from the previous year to 1.2 billion pounds for the year to the end of March, after its first full year as the owner of grid company, Western Power Distribution. The profits increase follows an 11% rise in operating profits to nearly £4.4 billion the year before, helped in part by a leap in electricity market prices that increased revenues from subsea cables connecting with Europe. Pettigrew oversaw these leaps in profit and he took home £6.5 million last year. That was a million more than the year before and yeah, that's right. While the rest of us were getting poorer amid mounting energy costs, Pettigrew took a million pound raise on the back of our spiralling bills. Sean, I want to come back to something that you said earlier about our politicians. Why are they disproportionately richer than the rest of us? What, when did that happen? It's been a, you know, a slow... Um, a slow burn pretty much since the Thatcher period. I mean, there have always been privileged politicians, but um, I think the reason that it's the case now, um, you know, is, well, I mean, there's there's wider issues of social mobility and access to politics. Um, the fact that, like, you know, to be even in a position to be a lawmaker, but also it's about the way that parties select candidates, place candidates. Often the people who are selected have themselves, you know, vested interests. They might not have personal vested interests, but if you look, you know, at their family members, their close friends, often these are people that, you know, you could argue are... Um, are sort of uh, parachuted in to protect the, pros the prospects and the um, prosperity of um, of of um, executives, um, directors of previously privatized national public services. What well, should be public services like electricity, like water. Um, yeah, and I, and I think it is worth saying it, it refers uh, referring back to what I said earlier about. Um, this with regards to privatization here, we are seeing um, the end results of privatization, which is you take something that's like a resource, a national resource that we all need, the economy needs to function, we all need to live, uh, and you put it into the hands of uh, private shareholders. And it is in those people's interests that the, uh, the, the executives will always act. They're not interested in us, the, we're just the consumer of the product. But of course, this isn't any old product. When it's electricity, when it's water, when it's gas, we actually need this to live. So, it, you know, it isn't just a matter of like, it's not equivalent to owning a shop. Um, and treating it like it is has been a, a corrosive element in our political um, life, well, since, since the 80s. Something I think about quite a lot is that MPs didn't receive a salary until I think it was 1911 because they were assumed to be people who already had means. So, you know, the wealthy elites were the only people who were meant to be in parliament. And then the Labour Party really pushed for MPs to get a salary to ensure that working class people would be able to become politicians. And now you look at what salaries for members of parliament have become, have ballooned to, and you look at the demographics once again in there and it's like the rich, they always, they always manage to do it. Let's get to our next story. Artificial intelligence was supposed to make our lives easier. Instead, it's making workers redundant. 
on a mass scale. This week, BT has announced it will cut a massive 55,000 jobs over the next seven years. And most of these jobs will be cut here in the UK, where the company employs 80,000 people. Around 25,000 engineers will be axed after the full fibre rollout comes to an end and old copper networks are shut down. But crucially... BT have said that 10,000 of those axe jobs will be replaced by AI. The news was broken by Chief Executive Philip Janssen as he was outlining a 12% drop in annual profits. Not to worry though, BT still made £20.7 billion last year. Now this is what Janssen had to say about planned cuts. For a company like BT, there is a huge opportunity to use AI to be more efficient, he said. There is a sort of 10,000 reduction from that sort of automated digitization will be a huge beneficiary of AI. I believe generative AI is a huge leap forward. Yes, we have to be careful, but it is a massive change. Apparently, this isn't a surprise to the unions. Here's how a CWU spokesperson responded to the announcement. The introduction of new technologies across the company, along with the completion of the fibre infrastructure build replacing the copper network, was always going to result in less labour costs for the company in the coming years. However, we have made it categorically clear to BT that we want to retain as many direct labour jobs as possible and that any reduction should come come from subcontractors in the first instance and natural attrition. The proposed layoffs are just the latest casualties of the AI revolution. It's not just tech industries. Because a few weeks ago, media company BuzzFeed announced they were shuttering their award-winning news division. Now, BuzzFeed News, for those of you who only know BuzzFeed for listicles, was where the organization's investigative journalism lived, breaking stories like the Met's shocking missed opportunities to stop serial killer Stephen Port, or the multiple investigations into dodgy dealings of Donald Trump and his allies. So, what are they replacing painstaking, careful reporting with? AI. According to tech magazine Futurism, BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti has reportedly been telling investors that, quote, static content on the site, whatever the hell that is, will be replaced by AI wherever possible. Here's a snippet of a dystopian speech Peretti made to more people who think that journalism should be a profit-driven enterprise. We view AI as an exciting new creativity tool, one that humans can harness to open up new avenues for imagination, storytelling and entertainment, and explore new premium product offerings that allow us to innovate and collaborate with our clients and partners on a new frontier in media. Over the next few years, generative AI will replace the majority of static content, and audiences will begin to expect all content to be curated and dynamic with embedded intelligence. AI will lead to new formats that are more gamified, more personalized, and more interactive. And I just want to read you the vision of online media that BuzzFeed president Marcella Martin outlined as part of the same presentation, because it's pretty striking. Operationally, from an efficiency perspective, AI enables rapid prototyping of new content formats without the need to add fixed costs. Instead of generating 10 ideas in a minute, AI can generate hundreds of ideas in a second. For example, our team members can talk directly to an AI chatbot to progress their creative ideas. And earlier this year, our product team rolled out an exciting new feature that leverages AI to automatically suggest SEO headlines for our article based on other headlines. And we have several more developments being built into our CMS to make content creation significantly easier. 
This is very funny because Google, kings of SEO, are actually changing what SEO even means because of AI. So SEO-driven headlines will not even be useful anymore. And all of this makes an absolutely fascinating contrast to what Jonah Peretti said in January 2023. Talking to CNN for their Reliable Sources newsletter, Peretti spoke about AI and journalism. and This is what he said. I think that there are two paths for AI and digital media. One path is the obvious path that a lot of people will do, but it's a depressing path. Using the technology for cost savings and spamming out a bunch of SEO articles that are lower quality than what a journalist could do, but a tenth of the cost. That's one vision, but to me, that's a depressing vision and a short-sighted vision because in the long run, it's not going to work. And for those of you in the audience who don't know what SEO is, it's a search engine term basically that means your content, your pieces, your reporting gets picked up by search engines like Google. And it's why all the headlines you see are really, really dumbed down. Perhaps Jonah Peretti does not see a difference between his words then and his actions now, but we really do. Sean, what do you make of this AI revolution? Are these layoffs the obvious consequence of AI use under capitalism? Would this be different if we lived under a different social order? Well, it's an interesting question. I think there's been a lot of interesting work done by socialist and Marxist thinkers about the revolutionary potential of technologies like AI. Dare I plug Aaron Bastani for the automated luxury communism? There you go, Aaron. That's a free one. Um, (laughs) And um, yeah, and of course, you know, what I think many people would agree is that something like a powerful technology like uh, AI does have the potential to enhance the creative powers of humanity. It can do things potentially, you know, in the right hands that we cannot, um, you know, faster, quicker, better, more, um, more expansively. The problem, as you say, is that like so many things, something that has a genuinely revolutionary potential uh, loses it under when it under a capitalist system. You know, something like uh, I was thinking about the whole thing about AI, and you know, I'm a writer. Um, I don't particularly. I feel quite threatened by the idea of artificial intelligence being able to do something I can do. Um, but the reason being, if you think about it, you know, under socialism, perhaps my writing, any art, journalism, whatever, would genuinely be a an expression of my creative soul. And it wouldn't be a means by which I had to live because I would have everything I needed to live. And it wouldn't also be for profit of the, you know, the publishers, the the publications that might commission me. Unfortunately, I don't live in that reality. So what is happening, I think, with AI, there is a real risk that what it's actually going to be used to do is it's one in the hands of a very small number of companies, isn't it? It's your Amazons, it's your Microsofts, it's your Googles. And uh, they are just going to use it to kind of strengthen their kind of vice-like grip, like a monopoly, um, you know, capitalism, uh, you know, on steroids, is that they're just going to use it to strengthen their grip hold over us, frankly, as a species, um, because they they will be able to develop AI technologies faster and better than anyone else. And of course, it means that they treat their own workers and gradually that filters on that workers are being treated more. So something that genuinely has a revolutionary capacity for humanity and is, you know, potentially in the fields of science and medicine, capable of amazing things, is actually going to be used Um, by some of the worst people on the planet in order to further sort of discipline and marginalize and crush the working class. Um, But yeah, so unfortunately, I think for me, it's an intensification of the capitalist hellscape we already live in, Moya. I do think it's a really fascinating, unholy marriage that we're seeing here between, you know, modern digital online journalism 
and AI because it really underlines this idea that there's somehow become entrenched that journalism should be for profit. But the profit completely undercuts the purpose of journalism. This is why we get so much drivel and so much content instead of actual reporting. Uh, AI is only going to further increase, I think, that rot by removing the human element in media, the, the one bulwark at the moment that is stopping it from just being constant listicles. And it is also fascinating when you think about AI and the fact, you know, all these people were told, leave journalism, learn to code, and now AI can code better than anyone ever predicted. It turns a day's worth of coding into 30 minutes worth. Uh, it's just uh, all these things, as Sean has said, could enhance humanity. It could drive us forward, but under capitalism, it's merely just going to replace the most vulnerable workers. Next story. Former health secretary Matt Hancock is in the news again. And no, it doesn't involve kangaroo penis or cringe fake tears on breakfast television. This time it's about Tory donors and the direct access they had to him during the pandemic. The government has released WhatsApp messages and emails showing that donors were able to get in touch with Hancock directly in order to promote companies that they were involved with that were offering COVID services. Mustafa Mohammed has donated more than £230,000 to the Tories. His company, Genix, which operates dental clinics, has given a further 156000 In June 2020, Mohammed emailed Hancock, offering to partner Genix with another company, Ecolog, to provide rapid testing. Hancock replied, quote, Very interesting. Before his office referred Mohammed to the government's VIP lane, that was the fast route to contracts for personal contacts of ministers. Within a week, Mohammed had a meeting with the Department of Health and Social Care and wrote this to Hancock afterwards. My dear friend, hope you are well. I had the call today with Redacted and Redacted Team Today, which went well. Thank you ever so much for your kind help. I'm very much looking forward to seeing you soon. To which Hancock replied, excellent. So, what happened next? The Guardian reports this. A legal letter of intent was signed by the Department of Health and Social Care on the 4th of September 2020, which guaranteed a multi-million pound payment to Ecolog, even if a full contract was not issued. The following year, the DHSC decided it did not want to proceed and gave Ecolog £38 million in settlement for, quote, mobilisation costs, including a, quote, profit component, the DHSC confirmed that no services were provided by the company. £38 million for doing absolutely nothing. That wasn't the only time that Mohammed got in touch with Hancock. The day that the Ecolog contract was signed, he promoted another testing company, Oxed, writing this. My dear friend, hope you're well. Absolutely amazing news and support for the 20-minute COVID test. As you'll be aware, my dear friend, I'm involved with Oxed and I have been liaising with Redacted and Redacted team who've been extremely helpful. We're now awaiting the results from Condor, which should be out any time. Could you please let me know if there's anyone else we should be contacting to speed up the process, my dear friend? Thank you for all your help. To which Hancock replied, Thanks, Mustafa. I'll take a look at the email. The company was also promoted to ministers by a second donor, Mohamed Amersi, but no contract was awarded. We should be absolutely clear that both donors say they made no financial gain from their ministerial contracts. And there is no suggestion that anyone acted unlawfully. In response to the disclosures, Mustafa Mohamed said this. 
Many highly experienced individuals were working incredibly hard, doing everything they could to try and save lives. Any insinuation that anything improper or morally wrong was occurring is completely unfounded. Many highly experienced individuals were working incredibly hard. That's schmoozing. Mohammed Amersi told The Guardian that all approaches to ministers were, quote, at all times on a philanthropic basis. And Matt Hancock's spokesperson told The Guardian this. Government COVID contracts were decided, priced and signed off by the civil service who are independent of ministers to suggest any wrongdoing is offensive and false. Sean, it's Matt Hancock's WhatsApps keep getting into the public domain. What do you make of that? Does that sound above board to you? There is a difference between, and you know, whether or not it, you can technically escape some kind of accountability on the basis on which approaches are made. But I think to any one of us that does not exist in this world of what we have been talking about throughout the programme, this revolving door that you mentioned earlier between Westminster politics and, you know, these extremely uh, wealthy, powerful individuals who, um, you know, make up the governance of huge companies, their overtures to ministers, you know, my dear friend, um, (laughs) you know, the very fact that it just shows a level of chumminess and access that the, you know, average person in a democracy does not get to ministers. There is a certain level of soft influence that to me, yeah, it may be on a technical um, basis in certain circumstances, you know, there aren't necessarily legal consequences to be applied to it. And I, I can't say whether that's the case here, but it doesn't seem above board to me in a kind of moral, ethical sense for what I want out of a democracy. Of course, Matt Hancock isn't the only Tory in the public eye for being chummy with party donors. In fact, now an MP has been forced to apologise for failing to declare her links with a shadowy donor group that she hosted for dinner in the House of Commons. Amanda Soloway was a whip at the time that the dinner happened and in charge of enforcing party discipline. It makes the omission even more scandalous. Politico reports this. Energy Minister Amanda Soloway sponsored the event in June last year on behalf of Business for a, quote, unincorporated association with ties to a city insurance firm. Business for had given £15,000 to her local conservative grouping just six months earlier. House of Commons rules state that the MPs using taxpayer-funded facilities are expected to declare any existing financial links with the groups they are hosting and flag such events in advance with the Parliament's standards watchdog. But while Soloway included the donation on the register of MPs' interest, parliamentary records show that she did not then highlight the connection when agreeing to host the dinner for business for on the Westminster estate. Soloway's local party received a further £10,000-£20,000 from Business for in January. So what is Business for? The answer is, nobody knows. Politico goes on to report this. Business for has donated over £180,000 to the Conservative Party since 2016, according to the UK Electoral Commission. But its status as an unincorporated association means it is not required to detail the source of its funds or publish its accounts. Data from the Electoral Commission, which lists basic information about unincorporated associations, which have given more than £25,000 in a single year, shows insurance firm Kerry London Limited serves as the registered address for business for. Kerry London has previously donated to the Conservatives and is also listed in the House of Commons records as a sponsor of the Business for dinner. Kerry London did not respond to questions about its relationship with Business for by the time of publication. 
Let's move from declarations, or the lack of them, to delusions. Jeremy Hunt gave a speech to Tory donors last night. I wonder if Business Four was among them. It all took place in the Swish Dorchester Hotel in central London, where Hunt tried to keep his party's supporters upbeat. The Mirror reports this. Jeremy Hunt yesterday insisted, Everything is going well in a speech to Tory members and donors. Mr Hunt told the audience that Britain is in a, quote, incredibly powerful position at the moment. He told them to block out all the, quote, negativity. (laughs) Jeremy Hunt is making like a TikTok shaman. Yes, everything is going so, so well. Like the cost of living crisis, soaring inflation, rising interest rates, almost zero growth. I could go on. Meanwhile, an attendee said this. Jeremy Hunt said the polls are swinging in the Tories' direction. He counterpointed the negativity. It is worth challenging the negativity. It's worth people looking deeper and realising not everything is quite what it seems. Those toxic polls. You've got to get rid of those toxic polls in your life. Everything is not quite what it seems. Actually, I could give you 1,006 things that are exactly as they seem. Each of those seats the Tories lost in the local elections. Let's hope Jeremy Hunt can block out that negativity. Let's go on to our next story. Since Keir Starmer took over the Labour Party, he and his allies have tried their very best to scrub all memories of the previous leader from public record. Three years ago, Starmer removed the Labour whip from Jeremy Corbyn after a statement Corbyn made responding to the EHRC's report into anti-Semitism in Labour. Starmer then doubled down on his reasons for refusing to restore the whip to the Islington North MP, saying that his support of the Stop the War Coalition in the wake of the war in Ukraine was going against Labour's support of NATO. And earlier this year, Starmer unequivocally said that Corbyn would not be allowed back into the Labour fold. Let me be very clear about that. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn will not stand for Labour at the next general election as a Labour Party candidate. Uh, What I said about the party changing, I meant, and we are not going back. And that is why Jeremy Corbyn will not stand as a Labour candidate at the next general election. In March 2023, this stance became formal Labour policy. Labour's ruling body, the NEC, passed a motion proposed by Starmer that would ban it from selecting Corbyn as a candidate at the next general election. But the NEC is made up of party bigwigs and often disproportionately represents whatever faction is at the top of the Labour Party. In contrast, constituency Labour parties represent members on the ground, aka the grassroots. And members of Jeremy Corbyn's CLP have just backed him almost unanimously to stay on as their MP. In a motion passed last night by 98% of attendees, Corbyn's local party said it should be their, quote, democratic right to choose their own MP. Here's what that motion said. This CLP would like to thank our sitting MP, Jay Corbyn, for his commitment and service to the people and want to express that it should be our democratic right to select our MP. 60 delegates representing CLP members were in attendance at the meeting. No one spoke against the motion and there was one absentation on the vote. In response, the former Labour leader signalled he was likely to run as an independent against the party he has served for 40 years, saying, quote, I love my job and I want to carry on doing it. He added this. Four million children are living in poverty. A quarter of a million are homeless. Thousands are struggling with stress and anxiety. 
As the government creates record levels of inequality and hardship, we desperately need a political strategy that inspires people to believe in a fairer, kinder and greener world. I am proud to represent Islington North in Parliament. I spent the last 40 years campaigning alongside my community for a redistribution of wealth, ownership and power. That's what I will continue to do. To speculate, this is the exact headache that Keir Starmer was hoping to avoid. He was banking on Jeremy Corbyn not being willing to run as an independent, knowing that it would likely get him expelled from his beloved Labour Party. But by making it clear that Corbyn couldn't stand as a Labour MP, full stop, ever again, Starmer forced a decision. Poor politicking once again from Mr Forensic. Does this show a gap, Sean, between Labour Party management and the interests of grassroots members? The CLP here in question was Islington North, which is you know, Jeremy Corbyn's constituency, in which he has always been hugely popular. And of course, they are going to be somewhat aggrieved that they are being told by Labour Party management that they cannot have their sort of sitting MP as the Labour candidate. I would say that I certainly think what it is indicative of is this sort of baffling OTT strategy, even if you enter into the logic of Keir Starmer and, you know, the Labour right, I think it's quite baffling that the sort of a huge amount of energy expended and time expended on burying Jeremy Corbyn and the memory of Jeremy Corbyn, to me, seems hugely um, out of touch. And as you say, poor politicking, because whether they like it or not, Jeremy Corbyn represented, you know, was an emanation of a huge movement among young, particularly young and grassroots members of the Labour Party who wanted some kind of change. That project didn't work. Um, you know, it is interesting to me that Keir Starmer has no interest in trying to absorb those concerns at all. You know, the ones that led to the election of Jeremy Corbyn. Instead, it is this sort of determination to stamp him out, to um, completely sort of like, yeah, eradicate any memory of him. And, and, and Starmer spends a lot of energy defining himself in, in opposition to Corbyn, more so than in opposition uh, to Rishi Sunak or to the Tories. And, uh, and I think that is extremely um, unwise and short-sighted because he's showing no curiosity about enharnessing in, in any way the power of the huge mobilisation of young um, and quite passionate grassroots members that, that you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, and the Corbyn Project, you know, represented and answered their call. I'm really interested in Starmer's psychology here because, you know, he, quite a recent MP, came to, uh, became an MP in 2015, I believe. And he, you know, when you he first heard of him, he positioned himself as fairly left wing, you might call it, you know, said he had socialist credentials, made all those noises. But now he is so determined, as you say, to field himself as someone in opposition to everything that Jeremy Corbyn and the Corbyn Project stood for. And the more that he, Corbyn refuses to go away, the angrier Starmer gets. And it, it, it's, it, I just wonder, where is that coming from? Is this a personal vendetta going on now? And why is Corbyn and the Corbyn Project such a bugbear to this man who doesn't seem to have really fixed politics of his own? I mean, yeah, I would agree with you. I think, I think it is that he probably. I mean, I, I, again, I don't, I don't, 
uh, know the inner workings of Keir Starmer's mind, but I would imagine that it's, yeah, it's, it's reasonable to believe he might have a degree of resentment about, um, you know, the conviction and passion that someone like Jeremy Corbyn elicits in those who support him, of which, you know, there were many. I mean, in terms of, you know, his election as Labour Party leader, you know, he had the largest vote share of any Labour leader um, in living memory. And so, you know, for someone like Starmer, who really, I mean, is just benefiting from the Tories' complete decline and collapse, you know, it doesn't really offer anything. It doesn't stand for anything. I think um, I think Jeremy Corbyn must be a real thorn in his side. And the fact that, of course, Corbyn won't go away. Um, and yeah, I think it's also interesting that I think what um, Starmer has done by pursuing this sort of anti-Corbyn um, grandstanding is just sort of take on the concerns of basically right-wing media who really um, turned on Corbyn, were very committed to um, destroying the Corbyn project when Corbyn actually had a reasonable expectation of accessing power. And it's sort of odd that actually a lot of people have moved on and Starmer is still banging this drum. I find it quite pathetic, to be honest. Same. He's, as someone puts it, briefcase labour. They will never never be famous. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining me tonight and being such a wonderful guest as per your insight and your analysis is always so fresh. Enjoy. Oh, you flatter me, but no, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, uh, I hope I served you well, Moya. <laughs> Never serving, always in partnership. And thank you so much, everyone, for watching this evening. Remember, if you don't want us to be replaced by AI, you can always support us at navara.mediasupport. We will be back tomorrow at 6pm for another live stream. But for now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.